Oh, Lord Jesus, would you grant us hope in our hearts and eyes of faith to see the work you are doing, even amongst us, your people. Would you help us to tune out all the anxieties and sorrows that would distract us from hearing your words this morning? Would you grant us a glorious glimpse of your work to build a house to dwell in? And would you encourage our hearts as a result? We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. It is a towering monument to the ability of man to build. The Burj Khalifa. Back in 2010, it opened up after five years of being built. It's in the city of Dubai, and to say it is a sight to behold is an understatement. It stands 2,722 feet tall. That's roughly twice the size of the Empire State Building. It weighs 500,000 tons before people even moved in, just the structure itself. A, a building of such size and such significance requires a sturdy foundation to be built on, and this is no exception. It required 192 gigantic concrete piles driven into the ground, the foundation was made up of concrete in such quantity that it could fill 18 swim, Olympic-sized swimming pools. All that's needed because of the size and the significance of the structure to be built on top of it. Uh, it's an incredible building. I had a chance to uh, go see it myself. You, it's not the sort of thing that you do if you're afraid of heights. There's an elevator that takes you from the bottom to the observation deck in under a minute and a half. It goes over 20 miles an hour getting you up there. Your ears actually pop on the way up. Here, there's a picture of a group of us that took a vision trip to Dubai and got to look down at skyscrapers that would fit in with any, uh, any downtown in the United States that we might know. It's incredible. How to build something of such size and significance, it requires an incredible, incredible strength and sturdiness for a foundation. This morning we come to a building project from King Solomon. A building project of such size, such scope, such significance, that there's only one foundation sturdy enough for it. The very promises of God. Solomon's Legacy will be cemented as he builds the temple where God will dwell. And as we examine this text, which shows us the details of how he prepared to build that temple, we'll learn something of what it is, requires, uh, what it, what's required for any of us to do kingdom work. We'll move through it in three sections. The first in verses one through six we'll see the promised opportunity, the promised opportunity. Then in verses seven through 12, we'll see the wise agreement, the wise agreement. And then finally in verses 13 through 18, we'll see the massive workforce, the massive workforce. In all this, we will see that only God's promises are strong enough of a foundation for kingdom work to be built. 
Let's begin in verses one through six. The promised opportunity. Where we are in the story of Solomon's life, we have seen the gifts that God has given him of wisdom on full display. Back in chapter four, we saw how God gave him wisdom to bring justice to that difficult court case. Then in chapter five, uh, uh, then later in chapter four, we saw how Solomon had wisdom in administration. He was able to uh, govern this expansive kingdom and built a governmental system able to bring order to this chaos of this great people. We saw also that he had wisdom in the manner of arts, wisdom in science, and this wisdom caused him to become world famous. People around the world had heard of Solomon and were gathering to hear of him. One such example was the man we see in verse 1, a king named Hiram of the kingdom of Tyre. We're told that Hiram heard that Solomon had become king and he sent servants to Solomon. This was a astute political move. You hear of a new monarch coming to the throne. You obviously want to try to make sure that you have opportunity to make an ally and not an enemy. Hiram was a significant king in Solomon's world. The kingdom of Tyre is in the northern part of Solomon's territory along the coast, and also referred to as Sidon or Phoenicia. It was rich with resources. It had wonderful trees. It had access to ports. It was a, a potential power, potentially powerful ally for Solomon. And it turns out there was also history there. Hiram had been a friend of Solomon's father, David. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we were told that David was helped by Hiram to build his own house. Hiram provided the workers and the lumber needed so that David could build a house fit for his kingship. So Hiram sends a delegation to Solomon, and then in verses 2 through 6, we see the response from Solomon. He senses an opportunity, and he seizes it. Solomon sends work back, a word back to Hiram. He knows a good opportunity when he sees it. The, the crux of what he's asking is down in verse 6. He's essentially putting in an order for some lumber, now will you join your servants and I will pay you for the servants such wages as you set and you know that there's none among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Solomon knows that Hiram can give him something he needs, something he needs for a particular ambition. What is that ambition? What is the motivation for Solomon putting in this order for lumber? Well, it is... Solomon's ambition to build a house for his God, Yahweh. Solomon is motivated to no longer let God live in a portable tent like he has for so long. He wants God to dwell in the midst of his people in a house fitting for his glory. You might think that this is just another act of a king trying to cement his legacy and show that his kingly might surpasses the other kings in his area. It was normal for ancient kings to build worship centers to gods. We certainly know of the Egyptians doing such. Hiram himself built several of these worship centers. 
There is a way that ancient kings were known for for gathering their power by using religious worship as an element of that. And yet, if we look carefully at Solomon's motivations, we'll see they're more than just a a desire to cement his power. Look in verses 3 and 4. Solomon reminds Solomon writes a letter to Hiram, and in so, he reveals that he knows that God's timing is on his building of his temple. Verse 3, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare which was, uh, with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. If you remember back to David's ambition, David had this same desire to build a house for God. And yet God refused to let David do so. It's recorded both in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles. It's worth us reading the 1 Chronicles version. 1 Chronicles 22 verses 7 through 10. Pay attention to the details as I read it. David speaking to Solomon said, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying... You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I shall establish his royal throne in Israel forever. It must have been a hard thing for David to swallow, to be barred from building the house of God. And yet God promised there would come a day, there would come a time in which he would allow his house to be built by David's son, Solomon. The key difference here is that his house, God's house, must be built during a time of peace, under a king of peace. Solomon recognizes that the time is here. The window of opportunity has opened. He knows so because he has peace on all sides. No wars, no strife. He has the window of opportunity to build God's house. This isn't Solomon motivated by pride, Now, this is Solomon motivated by God's very promise. Solomon would build the house of the Lord just the way God said he would. Solomon writes this letter to Hiram, appealing to him a bit like a souped-up Lowe's lumber order in order to do a big project, a project to build God's very house. But the question is, how will this foreign king respond to his request. Well, that's what we see in verses 7 through 12. Verses 7 through 12, we see the wise agreement. The wise agreement. If you've been paying attention to the political landscape, both here nationally and internationally, it would be fair to say diplomacy is out and bare-knuckle brawling seems to be in. With an environment such as that, it should be something we appreciate greatly when we see diplomacy work so well and result in peace and prosperity for everyone. Solomon has been given so many gifts of wisdom. 
And now we get to add one more to the tally. He is given wisdom in the matters of politics. This section begins and ends with a appreciation for the wisdom that Solomon is given in relation with international affairs. In verse 8, Hiram declares that the uh, verse 7 the, the, Hiram declares that uh, the Lord has given David a wise son over his people. And then in verse 12, the narrator himself tells us that God gave wisdom to Solomon, referring to everything related to the treaty he formed with Hiram and the building project that he, uh, that results. We see again God giving his king what's needed for him to rule well, to bring plenty and prosperity to his people just as he promised. In verse 7, we see that Hiram, upon receiving the letter from Solomon, is moved to, frankly, a form of worshipful exaltation. He rejoices greatly and he says, blessed be the Lord this day who has given David a wise son to be over this great people. How amazing is that? A, a foreign king who worships foreign gods giving words of praise to Israel's God for how he has raised up Solomon to be their king. From there, uh, from there forward, we see uh, Hiram responds positively to Solomon's request. They form a treaty, we're, we're told, in verse 12. And the details of that treaty are laid out in verses 8 through 11. He agrees to give Solomon the lumber that was requested. He, he agrees to use the, his own servants to do so. He, they'll make the logs into rafts and send them along the sea and to Solomon and his, and his men. He makes a, a slight adjustment. Instead of Solomon's offer to pay money for the, the lumber and for the services, instead he wants to be paid in food, something which Solomon seems happy to do. Likely that would have been a favorable arrangement for Solomon. But in all of this, the, the main point is in verse 12. This results in peace between Hiram and Solomon. This political dance that Solomon does so deftly, it results in him having a powerful ally. Solomon controls the land, Hiram controls the sea, and the, everyone wins as these two work together. All this is part of God's blessing to his kingdom through his wise king. Now, how does the work actually get done? Solomon has all the materials he needs the finest wood in the whole world, the cedars of Lebanon. He has access to stones, but it's hard work to cut trees. It's hard work to hew stones. What sort of a workforce would be needed to collect everything for such a grand project? Well, that's what we see in verses 13 through 18, the massive workforce, the massive workforce. Solomon pulls from two main pools to get his workers, the first pool are people that are citizens of Israel. There are 30,000 men that he drafts into his service. They are forced laborers, we are told. That may sound unusual to us. It was not so unusual back then. The second pool is made up of 150,000 men drawn from the kingdoms that were under Solomon's authority that had been conquered in Joshua's conquest. 
those, those men are added to the manual laborers and the stone cutters, and they are all sent to Lebanon to do the work needed to prepare the materials for the building of the temple. Now, a vast workforce like that required a command structure. We're told he has 3,300 chief officers. That's quite a layer of middle management. And on top of it all, he has a dinaram, the, the one uh, cabinet official that's in charge of all the labor and this whole project. Now, that is quite a contingent. It is quite the kingly-sized project. But before we move on to drawing lessons from this, we have to ask ourselves a question. There's a bit of an elephant in the room here. When we hear of Solomon using forced labor, of him taking kingdoms that had been conquered and drawing those people into his workforce by force, people start to wonder, is Solomon just in what he is doing? Is he just another oppressor? in the history filled with oppressors that exploit the weak for their own devices. Now, to answer a question like that, there are a number of considerations we need to take into account in how you read the Bible as a whole and this type of literature in the Bible particularly. When you're reading historical narratives, please realize that it is not always the case that a text is meant to be prescriptive, sometimes, very often, it is descriptive. That is, not all texts are meant to tell us what to do. Very often, they are describing what happened. And it requires great wisdom and knowing how the whole Bible fits together to be able to draw out its implications upon us as Christians living on the other side of the cross. We need to add to that the fact that Solomon's context and our own context are so very different. There's such a huge chasm between them that we are liable to misunderstand what Solomon does. And frankly, we're, we're liable to be unfair to Solomon. Our reference point for forced labor is the horrific legacy of that evil institution of American chattel slavery. Africans were taken their status as human beings was lowered. They were forced to labor. And, they were, and that was a, something that was perpetuated for hundreds of years in our country. When we hear forced labor, our mind immediately goes to that. And yet that is not what's happening in this text. American chattel slavery is not the reference point we should use. Instead, we need to look back to the ancient Near East and to the peoples of the time where Solomon lived. Remember, Solomon was a king, and ancient kings were understood to have the authority to require their subjects to do work for their kingdoms. We have lots of records of other nations in the area, Egypt being one of them, that would do gigantic drafts to take their citizens to do building projects for the king. Furthermore, we need to notice that Solomon, nowhere in the text, is accused of mistreating his citizens as he does so. I mean, it may seem unusual to us, but that doesn't mean that Solomon was doing so from ill motives. In fact, the workload he gives for the Israelites is remarkably light compared to what other kings did in that time. They were in Lebanon for one month and then back home for two 
In other words, they, they were only one third of their time was forced labor. The rest of the time were for their own devices. Now, the same cannot be said about those foreign workers, the people of the conquered nations like the Philistines under Solomon's control. They very likely would have labored for Solomon year round. And it's a much more difficult question to ask, how is he being just in their, his treatment of them? Here it's important to remember the history of how they ended up in such a situation. They were members of nations that opposed God's people and thereby opposed God as they entered the promised land. Even more than that, backing up, we were told that God had been forbearing and patient with them, holding off on judging these nations for their wickedness, generation after generation. That Israel's coming into the land was God's judgment upon them. Even more than that, Solomon has a unique place as the anointed king of Israel. None of us are God's king. And only God's king has the authority to punish his enemies. As the Psalms say, the son will dash the enemies with a rod of iron. What we see here uh, Solomon doing is part of his role as God's anointed king to punish his adversaries in this world. Now, I know that still is a difficult thing for us to stomach, but recognize it is not unjust of Solomon to do so. The text gives us no reason to think so. In fact, it attributes Solomon's whole building project to the wisdom God gave him. So if we're not supposed to draw HR principles out of this text, how does it apply to us here today? Well, let's look at three sets of applications. The first is that citizens of the kingdom must always submit to God's timing. Citizens of the kingdom must always submit to God's timing. I'm sure it would have been very difficult for David to stomach that he would be barred from building the temple. His heart's desire, a good desire for God to have a building fitting of his glory, a place to permanently dwell amongst his people. And yet, and yet even the king after God's own heart, he does not get to set the agenda. Only God does. Solomon was God's appointed king for this task, and he did so precisely at the moment that God appointed you realize this pattern is brought forward into the New Testament. Even Jesus, as he walked on this earth, he did everything according to his father's perfectly heavenly schedule. How much more should each of us be humble and be ready for God to reveal that his agenda supersedes ours? When I was a junior high pastor, I started doing ministry in a community that uh, in a church that was not doing a lot of local outreach, not a lot of evangelism. And I had great ambitions for how our student ministry was going to be outwardly focused, bringing lots of people to Christ. I came up with different programs. I, I tried doing things inside the church. I tried doing things outside the church. I tried reading books with particular students. I tried blanketly telling every student to go. I tried all sorts of different things. Over the course of five years, almost no traction on that front was granted to us. We saw just a couple kids come to Christ in total. 
And then on my last year as youth pastor, at this point I didn't have any grand plans anymore, some students approached me and said, oh, we just wanted to let you know that we're going to start an evangelistic club at our public school. I asked what I could do. They said, uh, nothing. You can pray for us. You can encourage us. I didn't do much aside from cheerlead them. And you know the most amazing thing happened. The Lord blessed it. The thing that I had longed for and desired for and even tried to bring about, God didn't grant to me. But for these students, this was their time to build for his kingdom. This is yet another reason in our series where we need to be a people that recognize the great need for wisdom from God. Wisdom to know when he is telling us to move forward and wisdom when he is telling us to wait. Brothers and sisters, I hope over the course of this series you have developed a pattern of asking God to grant you his wisdom, to know how to serve him well. Can I ask you to do that with humility on this very subject when you have big ambitions for God? Would you pray? Would you pray big, ambitious prayers for big kingdom work and knowing that your big, sovereign God holds the agenda of when and where he allows things to happen? We as a church certainly need to know this. I mean, so much of our church's planting and uh, journey to self-governance has not gone the way we drew it up. And yet, God's timing is perfect. His way is right. I hope we have that confidence in our hearts and we submit to God's timing in everything. A second line of application. We need to be sure to build on the sure foundation. We need to be sure to build on the sure foundation. Solomon's motivation for building the temple were the very promises of God. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, points out, this is the only foundation sturdy enough for kingdom work. The real foundation of the temple does not consist of huge blocks of stone. The temple rests upon the promise of Yahweh. Well, that's certainly true for Solomon and his endeavor to build this house for God out of stone and wood. How much more should it be true for each of us, citizens of the kingdom? Oh, we have big ambitions for the kingdom, but we need to make sure that those ambitions, that they are built upon the only sure foundation, God's very word to us. I love how we send missionaries halfway around the world to places like the United Arab Emirates and to Thailand. Now, why do we do something like that? Why spend so much money? Why say goodbye to people we love? Why make so many sacrifices, even risking the security of some of us to spread the gospel around the globe? Well, because Jesus, King Jesus, he told us that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he promised to be with us until the end of the age. So we go and we send because of the sure promise beneath our feet as we build. Well, why do we give sacrificially for gospel work? Why forego so many enjoyable things? Why give up financial security to support pregnancy centers? 
to support parachurch ministries, to support your local church? Why giving? Why do we give until it hurts in Jesus' name? Well, because Jesus told us, he promised us that we have treasure in heaven. And in fact, he is our greatest treasure and that is in a place that no one can take it from us. All that we have and all we need is Jesus himself. Or what about striving for unity? I mean, it's something that so much of the world is thinking about right now. Why do we work toward peace among people that are different from each other inside the church? I mean, wouldn't it be easier to just get people that along lines of affinity and basic socioeconomic uh, differences, uh, just to find a bunch of people that are like each other, that like being together? Wouldn't there be less friction? Wouldn't there frankly be more peace if we just hung out with people that were like us? Why would a church push even counterculturally, to bring together a people so very different than each other. People that make different amounts of money than each other. People born in different countries. People of different ethnicities. People of different education levels. Why would we do this? Well, because of the promise that we are all one in Christ Jesus. That already there is no more slave or free man no more barbarian or Scythian, no more Jew or Greek, no more even male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's why we strive even, yes, for unity along ethnic and racial lines. At a moment where our nation is thinking so much about this, let's be sure as we go about this work that we're doing so on the foundation of Christ's promise not on the foundation that the world tries to do this on. If you think about the way the world pursues unity, it's very different than the way a Christian does. If you are a Darwinist, you pursue unity only for your own survival, and the second it no longer helps you particularly, you will be done with your crusade for unity. If you are someone trying to build on the foundation of intersectionality, you hope that one day by tearing down those with power and authority, the oppressors, that you will bring about a utopia where everyone is equal. And yet that utopia will never appear. You'll slice and dice people up into different categories that are smaller and smaller and there will never be a unity that lasts. How different is it for a Christian? A Christian that longs to be united with all those who are in Christ Jesus together. And even as a Christian looks towards society who finds unity based on the fact we're all made in the image of our God, all worthy of love and justice. We need to make sure that we are building on the sure promises of God. And for a Christian, there are no surer promises than those found in the gospel of Jesus. Third line of application. Behold God's building. Behold God's building. So much of our time viewing these days goes to horrific videos of unrest and rioting and violence. Would you let your eyes, your spiritual ones, 
Would you let them gaze upon something else? Something far more beautiful. The work God is doing to build for himself a house. Solomon built a place for God to dwell. He did so by finding the finest materials that he could get his hands on. The cedars of Lebanon and great perfect stones for a foundation. And yet King Jesus, oh he built such a better temple. He came in the incarnation and made a dwelling place for God among men. But he didn't do, do so with wood and stone. He did so with flesh and blood. He built it once. And then he rebuilt it a second time. And that time it only took him three days. Not only did Jesus build a place for God and man to meet in his incarnation. He is now doing a work a work to build a spiritual house out of materials not of wood or stone, but out of materials he built, materials he purchased in his own blood, out of each of us. Ephesians 2, 20 through 21 tells us as much. The house that Jesus is building was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Maybe this week you find yourself discouraged by all the turmoil and violence, all the uncertainty, all the injustice in our world. Would you look and see with eyes of faith? Would you look and see the building that King Jesus is doing to make a house for God to dwell forever in the midst of his people? Ephesians 2 is talking about the work Jesus is doing to build his church. That great assembly in heaven that will spend eternity in peace and prosperity and the endless glory of their king. Oh, brothers and sisters, how good it is to know that our king is building something of such size and such significance that it will take our breath away forever. I've been doing a lot of thinking during this pandemic. What are some of the things that God is doing in our church? God is doing so many things at once. We very rarely know more than one or two of those things he is doing. And yet there are times where he reveals to us one of the lessons he has. I've been thinking about what this period where we haven't been able to meet in our building for so long is teaching us as a church. I think one thing is teaching us is that as great as an asset for ministry a building is, that it's actually not the structure we're supposed to be most invested in. I'm so thankful for the way that the Lord blessed us with a meeting place, a, a place for our children to be discipled, a place for us to bring unbelievers to hear the gospel preached, a place for us to enjoy fellowship. There is so much of our church's journey that is bound up in the brick and mortar of our building. I don't want to undersell that. And yet, the people of God, 
First and foremost, people of God are to be concerned with the building that Christ is creating. The spiritual house that all of us in Christ are building blocks of. I hope one of the things that we are learning through this pandemic is to rightly understand the significance of the tool of brick and mortar. And as important as it is, to never let it supersede the work of the church in the people of God and the preaching of the gospel. As we begin our gatherings again, next Sunday evening, outdoors, it's gonna be wonderful. You'll be able to see the church with your eyes and I I hope that is a, a joyful experience for you, but I hope more than anything, that gathering helps you to see the building that King Jesus is making. The one built on his very promises. The one that will endure forever. God dwelling in the midst of his church for all eternity. We'll close with the words of that great hymn, The Church's One Foundation. Let your eyes be cast forward to that day when you will enjoy the unmitigated presence of God in Christ Jesus forever. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord give us grace that we, like them the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. To build something of size and significance requires a sure foundation. And brothers and sisters, it is so good to serve King Jesus as he builds his church for God to dwell in forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. We worship the work you have done amongst our church family, the way we have seen so much grace to us. You've sustained us through startup phase. You've sustained us through rapid growth and all the growing pains that come with a church changing so rapidly. You've sustained us now through a global pandemic and through all the turmoil of racial strife in the streets. Oh, Lord Jesus, you have reminded us again and again of your faithfulness to complete the work given to you. Thank you that we can be confident in this, to know that we are being built on a sure foundation, your very promises to us. Would you help us to draw encouragement for the week ahead? Keep us from despair. Keep us from living as those without hope. Remind us of our glorious future as the dwelling place for God forever. We pray pray all this in your mighty name. Amen.